Haggai chapter 2, verse 18. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, and here's the question, is the seed yet in the barn? Is the seed yet in the barn? Is your seed still sitting in your barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, God says, I will bless you. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel. He's the leader of Israel at this time. He's the governor of Judah. Speak to Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and the riders and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. I want you to pray for your heart. I'm going to pray for all of us very short. I just want you to pray something very simple, brave, bold, and I hope you'll mean it. Lord, if there's a seed in my barn, show me what it is so I can bring it to you. It's a very simple prayer. Lord, if there's a seed in my barn, show me what it is so I can bring it to you. So Father, I'm asking Holy Spirit, the seed of the word is good. Till up the soil of our hearts. Give us more than ears to hear today. Give us hearts to believe. I pray that hunger will not be suppressed. I pray that thirst will not be prematurely slaked. I'm asking you, Lord, as we end a year together, I'm asking you, ratchet up our hunger for what you are desiring to serve and feed us with. Give us properly directed hungers, properly directed thirsts, and I pray that that want to that has been in the barn for a long time, that yearning, that hope, that trust, that displaced sense of awe, just reacquaint it with us today, Lord. Reassure us that it doesn't have to be complicated, but it does have to be genuine. In Jesus' name, amen. So when I'm talking about seeding 2020, it's a very common biblical metaphor, and I've already kind of touched on it. It's the metaphor of what you plant, you harvest. And Israel was in a time in their history where they had been sent back to the land after 70 years of captivity. God chastised Israel because of their disobedience. They were worshiping other gods. They were committing immoral practices. God warned them and warned them and warned them for decade after decade after decade. Israel would not repent. And so finally, God does what God always does. He stayed true to his word, and he sent the invaders down. The invaders conquered the city, burned down the temple, destroyed it completely. And then they were taken away captive for 70 years. 
But God has a covenant with Israel, and so he was not going to let them disappear off the face of the earth. And so at the end of the appointed time, those 70 years, God brought them back into the land through some decrees by some pagan kings, some leaders, and they came back into the land, built up the walls of the city. But the first thing that they needed to do was they needed to restore the temple because the temple was the seat of Israel's worship life. It was the place where God's dwelling uh, was manifest among them. And that temple had been completely destroyed, and it was really, it was the element of glory. Solomon's temple had been the glory of Israel because it housed the presence of God, and it was a beautiful temple. It was majestic. It was massive. It was overlaid with silver and gold. Somebody did the the numbers, and although the size of the actual temple would have been not even as big as half of a football field, the actual temple, but the, the, the ornate and the cost of it and how it was made and all of the, the jewels and all of the gold and silver, somebody said it would be the modern equivalent of a building costing about $270 million to $300 million. And so it was gorgeous, and then it was destroyed by the enemy because Israel had turned their back on God. So now they're getting their second chance, and they're coming back into the land under the leadership of a man named Zerubbabel. Awesome name. How many of you are expecting in the room? Anybody? I want us to get some good biblical names on them babies, amen? Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel Isle. There you go, right there, Zerubbabel. And so the, the Zerubbabel was the leader. Israel had no king. He was the governor. And so he came back and led the people, and they laid the foundation of the temple. They laid it down. But how many of you know when you start obeying God, the enemy gets mad? And so the enemy came from the surrounding territories and worked both politically and through threat of violence and discouraged the people from working any further on the foundation of the temple. And so for not one year, not two years, not five years, not even a decade, but for 16 years, Israel had been operating in fear to do what God had told them to do, which was to rebuild the temple. And so the foundation was there, but it was overgrown with weeds. It was neglected. And every time anybody walked by it, it was a reminder that we didn't do what God told us to do. But in the meantime, Haggai chapter 1, they're building up their own houses. They're building their own lives. They're investing in themselves. They're starting to prosper outwardly. They're getting all the external stuff together. They're getting their act together as, as individuals, as families, as head of households, getting the financial things going again, getting their cultural things going again. But the center of worship was still not finished. And so in, in chapter number one of Haggai, this is what God says. God says, I need you all, Israel, to consider your ways. God says, I actually want you to reflect on your lives. And then God tells them what they had been having a real hard time discerning. And I'm going to paraphrase it. God says in chapter 1, you work so hard, but you have nothing left at the end of the month. Everything you're putting your hand to, it's coming back with 40% return when you expected 100%. It's coming back with 50%. Your, your wine and your crops and all of it, you work so hard and what used to serve you in times past, it's not working. And then he says this, and Israel, I need to tell you why. Because I'm actually resisting everything you're doing. It's interesting how sometimes when things go bad, we blame the devil. It's a knee-jerk reaction. We blame the devil or we blame our enemy. Sometimes, friends, it's the Lord resisting you. It's the Lord saying to you, and by the way, when he resists you, when he disciplines you, when he fights you, he will be very specific about the reason why. 
I don't want to give any room for accusation for people to think, oh, maybe this bad thing happened because I was disobeying the Lord. Let me tell you, when the Lord wants to correct a behavior, he doesn't make you guess what that behavior is. He will speak specifically. It's the devil that just hollers at from the corner of the room. Hey, you're a terrible person. Go figure it out. That's the devil. That's the voice of accusation. The Lord operates in the voice of conviction. The Lord says to Israel, it's because you have failed to do what I told you to do. So I've blown on your crops and I've blown on your finances and I've not let you prosper. And that's the context for the verses that we just read together. And so what does this have to do? Well, this is a place where Israel is being told, check out your lives, assess it properly, consider this one thing, and put all of that underneath the banner of the promise I'm about to make to you. It's amazing to me that in the midst of their backsliddenness, in the midst of their indifference, in the midst of their negligence, in the midst of Israel for 16 years, putting themselves first, their agenda first, their lives first, God's stuff way over on the side. It's in the midst of that that God says, hey, guess what's going to happen starting now? I'm about to bless you again. I'm about to come after you and it's going to be good. I'm about to shake the nations. I'm about to prosper you, Zerubbabel. That's not the God that we religion teaches us about. The God that religion teaches us about is the God who is opposite to what the scriptures say. The scriptures actually say it's the goodness of God that leads you to repentance. And so much of religion is threats. People saying, you better do this or God's going to do this. Well, let's just take a comprehensive look at all of this and see what God says to us as individuals and as a church family. First of all, I believe this. These are some verses I didn't read in the first five verses. I want to say that when I'm talking about 2020 and what's coming, this is a little bit of a prophetic message. I'm sensing this in my spirit for three months and just now releasing this word. God is calling all of us to a renewed confidence. I want you to hear that, and I'll see it in the first five verses. Listen to how God opens up chapter 2. After chastising them in chapter number 1, and they brought to repentance, here's his word. Be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua. Joshua was the high priest. He's the religious leader. Zerubbabel is the civic leader. He's the, 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 the royalty, so to speak. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all ye people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I'm with you, declares the Lord of hosts. And then in verse 5, my spirit, somebody needs to hear this, remains in your midst. Fear not. Why is God going overboard and reassuring them? Because he's just chronicled to them a few months earlier in Haggai's first message how disobedient they were, how negligent they were how he had been forced to resist them because he couldn't prosper their disobedience. And so the people heard that message two months earlier in chapter one, and they repented, and they started to work on the foundation of the temple again. You see, listen, faith results in obedience. If there's not obedience, there's no faith. And, and we, can, we can obey without worshiping, but we cannot worship without obeying. And so God has brought both their obedience and their worship together. And the Lord has said, now I want you to know something in spite of your history, in spite of the last 16 years, in spite of the fact that you chose your own lives over what I was doing in the land. I want you to know something. I want you to be strong. Zerubbabel, you be strong. You're the civic leader. Joshua, you're the religious leader of my people. Be strong. And to all the people who have been busying themselves with their own lines, I want you to be strong too. I don't want you to be afraid anymore. I want you to know that my spirit remains in the midst of you, and it is time now to work. See, God's calling them to action. 
He's calling them to engage their lives with what his heart is engaged in. And it's so like us when we've been scolded by the Lord, when we've been convicted by the Lord, when we've had to acknowledge that maybe our past month, year, decade hasn't been what it could have been for the Lord. It's so common for us to say, but Lord, now that I've repented, just give me a little time. I'll try to make it up to you. I know it's going to take a long time, but you'll see that I'm really going to work off all those negligent years. You watch me, Lord. I'm going to do this. I hope it's okay with you. That's the spirit of religion. That's the spirit of probation, not pardon. And then then what God says is before that they could get there, he's like, no, actually, I don't want you to be afraid at all. I want you to be strong right now because I am still with you. My spirit remains in the midst of you. I believe that the Lord is calling us to renewed confidence. Some of you didn't have a great decade or year. Some of you may have gotten sidetracked with your own business, your own pursuits, your own ways, your own longings, your own wants, your own name, your own glory. It happens. And maybe God has awakened you and you've like, man, I'm so unfulfilled. It's not what I thought it would be. It's not yielding the results that I thought. It's, it's been all about me and I feel this distance from the Lord and I, I don't want to live like this anymore. And in a moment of personal or private repentance, you've either said or need to say today, Lord, I'm done. I want you to know when you reach that point, it's not probation, it's pardon. And the Lord says, good, now that you are realigned with me, I want you to be strong and I want you to operate in courage. You see, presence, I am with you, my spirit is with you. He told him in chapter one, I am with you. There's only two chapters, he says it in both chapters. I haven't left you. I haven't abandoned you. I I haven't kicked you to the curb because you haven't been the best child of mine that you could have been. He says, work because I'm with you and my spirit remains in your midst, so don't fear. But he did tell him to work. Let me tell you two things that the presence of God in a life, in a church, and in a ministry will always breed. The presence of God will breed both initiative and courage. He says, work, that's initiative. I'm with you. Now let's do something together. And then it also breeds courage. Don't you be afraid. I am with you. I am in the midst. So go down into verses six through nine with me. Because I believe this is a prophetic word to the individuals that can receive it here today. I also believe it's a word over this house, both Newbridge Church and IHOP Atlanta. But I I, I believe it's a word to, um, I believe it's a word to individuals if, if you can receive it. God's calling us to fixate, fixate on our destiny. Now, let me unpack that a little bit because that sounds like something somebody would preach right at the beginning of the new year. It sounds very uh, churchy. God is calling us to fixate on our destiny. I don't know of a better way to say it because I believe it's true. I'm just going to say it. There's a few things that the Lord had to remind Israel about because they were living in a comparatively lesser scenario than what they had historically known. At this time in Israel's history, there wasn't a lot of glory for Israel. There was no temple. There was no king. There wasn't a ton of stuff going on, but there was covenant. There was promise. God had made it to Abraham centuries earlier. It had filtered its way down through David. It had filtered its way down further into Israel as a nation. They had, they had been disobedient on their part to that covenant and God had disciplined them in captivity, but now they were back in the land. And so there is this idea that, okay, we're back in the land, we're back in alignment with God, but things outwardly don't look that awesome. 
And so what God wants to do when we get into that, that death mode of comparison, older people, I want you to hear me on this, that, that little thing inside of us that looks at what is, and to us it's not as glorious as what was, so we can't enjoy what is. And it happens, it's harder the older you get. Young people, y'all haven't been there yet because you, you, you're still in the early days and in those moments. But when you get a few years on you, you get some perspective and you can look back on decades and you can look back in a time in your nation's history and you can look back in a different season in the church. And it doesn't have to be centuries ago. It doesn't have to be decades ago. But you can look back and you can say, man, God was moving. God was doing something. The church was like this and the nation was like this and the people were like this and the, the great commission was being fulfilled like this. But now it just doesn't seem like that. And you can start looking in that rearview mirror and you look at what has been lost, so to speak. And when you fixate on your past, you're not going to enjoy your present. God is not doing anything yesterday. He's working today towards tomorrow. So while we need to learn from our yesterdays, we cannot live in our yesterdays. And so he's going to get them refocused on their destiny. Look what he says, and this is in chapter 2 and verse 3. I didn't read this, but he, Haggai knows what's going on. He says, who is left among you? He's talking of the temple. Who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it as nothing in your eyes? A little background in Ezra chapter 3. There's a little bit of an a, a, a unpacking of this. When the older men and women who had seen Solomon's temple before it was destroyed. So these people are old. They would have been young or adolescent at the time where Solomon's temple was still in existence. But they got carried off to captivity, got brought back. They see the destruction and they're remembering the glory of Solomon's temple. This massive, ornate, beautiful building where the presence of the Lord was for so long. And then they're now looking at this comparatively small footprint for the new building, the new temple. And Haggai reads their minds, so to speak. He really didn't even have to because in Ezra chapter 3, it says that when the, the foundation was beginning to get renewed, half of the people were rejoicing. They were saying, look what God is doing. The temple, Israel's temple is being rebuilt. We weren't here when the first temple was built. This is glorious. God's moving in our generation. We love this. And they're shouting for, for uh, praise and joy. And then the older people were saying, you don't understand. This is nothing compared to what it used to be. And they were weeping and they were crying and all they were sensing was the loss of former glory. Haggai, the prophet, who ministered, by the way, alongside of Zechariah, comes in and he says, he asked them a very pointed question. He says, I know you're comparing it to what it used to be, but is what God is doing right now, is that nothing in your eyes? Are you so hung up on what God used to do and how God used to do it that you can't enjoy and participate in what God is doing now and is about to do is the question. And so it even is asked by Zechariah. Y'all know this verse. Zechariah was ministering around the same time as Haggai. And in the same context of these same people, and when they're looking at the comparatively smaller new temple being built, this is what Zechariah asks. He says, who has despised the day of small beginnings. So God sends two prophets and part of their prophetic commission was this, get the people to rejoice in what I'm doing now instead of mourning over what I used to do and am no longer doing. Friends, you have to let go of your past. I want you to hear something. 
I'm, there are parts of my past I was so glad to let go of, all the nasty, all the garbage, but I'm not even talking about the, the stuff that since I've become a Christian, the good stuff that God's done. It's, it's not meant to become the object of your adoration. You, you and I can give God glory and praise and be so thankful for how he's done things and what he's done. But my friends, if you're fixated on what he used to do and expecting him to hit pause and then repeat over and over again, you're going to miss what he's choosing to do now. He's not obligated to bless what he used to bless. He's not obligated to repeat what he once did. He's not obligated to do a do-over. God has not lost his creativity. He didn't run out of ideas. He's not looking at this generation saying, man, uh, I, I, I just don't know what to do. I don't know how to reach them. That's just not the Lord. And so we, whereas we can be thankful for what he used to do and how he used to do it, we can't worship what he used to do and how he used to do it. And to the degree that we're mourning over what we consider a sense of loss, what's amazing to me is the people who weren't looking backwards because they had no backwards to look to, the younger people, they're like, this is awesome. We're getting a temple. The habitation of the Lord is going to be in our midst. We've never seen anything like this. I, I, I'm not young or old anymore. I'm middle-aged. I'm just kind of like walking the tightrope. I'll be old soon enough, but right now I'm just kind of, I'm in the middle, but I'm certainly not young anymore. So I love being middle-aged. It's fun. I like being almost 50 years old. And I love the fact that I can look at the younger generation and say, I love your zeal. I love your joy. You need some wisdom, but I love all of that that you've got. Listen, I'm going to tell you, God's going to do great things. And I like looking at the older generation saying, he's not done with you yet. He's not done with you. He doesn't have to put it in the template that he used to use. And so as a middle-aged guy, I can look backwards and say, hallelujah, I know what you're going through. I know what's going to happen. There's going to be some things God's going to do in your life. And I look at the older people, and I'm saying, I want you to set the example for middle-aged and younger. I don't want you to hold God hostage to your idea of what he needs to do. And so we have to look ahead. And that's what God does through Haggai's words in verses 7 through 9. This is where he's saying, I want you to remember your destiny, Israel. God says something that nobody in Israel was sensing. It wasn't happening at that time. This is a prophetic word from left field that there was nothing in the natural that would have indicated that this is what God was working on. Nothing. And this is what he said. I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver's mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. And then in verse 9, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. Nobody saw that coming. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, I have to discipline myself here because there is an eschatological prophetic fulfillment of this that I'm not even going to touch that involves the millennial temple in Israel in the last of the last days. I can't even go there right now. There's also, I believe, there was a fulfillment that, that took place when Jesus Christ walked in to Herod's temple, but which would have been uh, attached to the same location as this one, and, and he was the glory of God in the temple. I think you can make that application. But friends, this is what I really want to fix in, not so much the locational aspect of it, whereas I do believe that's important. That's just not my point for this morning. I want you to listen to what the Lord's saying. He's saying to a group of people who don't have any outward power, who are barely making it, who are just trying to prop up their lives and get by another day, and they're being, they had been attacked by surrounding uh, territories that were intimidating and threatening them, telling them not to build the temple, not to rebuild the temple. They had gotten letters from a pagan king saying, cease and desist on the work right now. 
And so everything about their life was suffocating. It was not anointed. They were barely making it. And God just steps up and he says, I'm so glad y'all repented in chapter one because listen, I've been waiting to release this word on you. I'm about to shake the nations. And then he mentions the silver and the gold. I'll give you what I believe was the in the moment practical application. They're lamenting because Solomon's temple was overlaid with gold. There was so much ornate and costly treasure attached to the physical structure of the temple, both inside and out. And they're looking at this thing that they're barely scraping by to get, and and they're starting to build on it, and they're recognizing that's why they're weeping. It's not like the other one. And God says, I want you to know that I got all the gold and silver that anybody could ever need if I want to put it on this temple. What's interesting is when later... A new king, Darius, would give a decree. He would write this decree to all the surrounding territories. Yeah, I actually want Israel to rebuild the temple under their God, and I want you all to give them all the gold, and I want you to give them all the silver, I want you to give them all the timber, I want you to supply the workers. I actually want you that resisted this work to be the ones who fund this work. You're talking about flipping that thing on its head. So there was a very literal fulfillment where God says, I've got all the silver and gold, quit your crying. I've got all all that needs to happen. I'm about to shake the nations. I'm going to turn them on one another. Now, friends, I want to go a little bit beyond this because I want you to know I do not believe that this prophecy has been fulfilled. I think that there are components of it that have been. Pardon me. But I think that there are components that have not been. And I believe that there, and I just want to point you there. I can't stay there. I want you to be pointed there. There is coming a day where the Lord is going to fulfill this with such an undeniable display of manifest manifest sovereign power on planet Earth that there will be no ability to deny that God has shaken the nations. Um, Yeah, I'm going to save that last point for a a minute. Let Let me get you into verses 10 through 17 just very quickly here. And then we'll wrap up in the end of the verses. I I, I just want to give you an opportunity to address your recent past and where you are with the Lord, to address it in an honest assessment. I think God is calling all of us, and as a corporate body of believers, he's calling us to an honest assessment. God cannot endorse a hypocritical heart. He can't. We can't praise him on Sunday and lift our hands and dance and nod our heads and say amen and and get our groove on and then ignore him or be indifferent to him the rest of the week. That's not a life he can endorse. It's not a life that gets promoted. He can't promote a hypocritical heart. He doesn't. And so Israel was given in chapter 1 an opportunity to hear from the Lord. And he wasn't screaming at them. He wasn't raging, flying off the handle, finally fed up. He came to them very paternally, very tenderly. He came in gentleness, but he came in truth. And so he does it again a little bit in chapter 2. And and, and, Well, let me just read to you from chapter 1. I think these verses will be up on the screen. This is how the Lord phrased where they had been before they repented. And just see if it touches your life in any way. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. And here's what the Lord said. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? While the temple, while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. That God's saying, I want you to look at your life. 
You've sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Then in verse 9, you looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. He anticipates their question. Why? Why would God do that? Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. Let me go down into chapter 2, because he says it in a different way. So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands and what they offer there, their offerings, their religious worship, what they offer is unclean. How did you fare when one came to a heap of 20 measures? There were but 10 When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. And listen to verse 17. I struck you in all the products of your toil, your work. I struck you with blight and mildew and hail, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. So the Lord's getting historical with them there. Now, they've already repented by the time they received that word I just read, but God is explaining to them what they had been living in for 16 years. God's saying, hey, there's a reason why your life isn't what you thought it would be. There's a reason why you're not being blessed. There's a reason why you're not being prospered. There's a reason why you're working yourself to the bone, but very little is coming forth from it. There's a reason for it. What is it? The Lord says, you're actually working on your own kingdom while you neglect mine. The temple was the center of Hebrew worship. And listen, the indication is that God was was starting off in small measures trying to get their attention. He's resisting their life in smaller measures, but as the time got longer, the, the resistance got stronger. And to the point where the Lord says, it was me. It was me resisting that because you are building your own lives and you are not connected to what I am doing. I appreciate the fact that we're not legalists in this house. I hate legalism. I used to be a legalist. I got saved twice. I got saved for my sin, then I got saved from legalism. I'm totally not really joking on that. I mean, literally, I got delivered from legalism, and it took a minute, but I got delivered. So I hate legalism, but here's my concern. My concern is that to avoid the appearance of legalism, the new kind of like paradigm is casual Christianity, flippant Christianity. Hey, I'm going to do my thing, you know. God's my homeboy, Jesus and me, we're cool. And obedience, that's legalism. Morality, that's legalism. Sacrifice, that's legalism. I'm not striving, I'm not working, I'm not under a religious spirit. I don't have to do any of that. Let me tell you, I'm gonna gonna warn you here. If obedience, morality, and sacrifice to the kingdom sound like legalism to you, I'm suspicious that you're not in the kingdom. I don't think you're in the kingdom if obedience to God who owns us. Oh, he's a papa, but he's also a master. And if we feel like, oh, I don't have to deal with that, and we just kind of glide, glide, we just kind of do our thing, that's not the kingdom. I hate legalism, but I hate what I call licentiousness too, which is just taking license with God and the things of God. 
So God says, hey, Israel, there was a reason why nothing was working, and I'm glad you've repented. And now I don't want you to be afraid anymore. Now I want you to know my spirit is in the midst of you. But none of that message, none of the comfort came until they addressed the conviction. I'm not going to be the preacher who sells out his calling and looks at the people and tells people no matter how they're living, no matter what they're thinking, no matter what they believe, no matter what comes forth from their life, God's good. God's good. I'm not going to be a lying prophet in my generation. I'm going to tell you, he is a father in the truest and most beautiful sense of the word, but there's a reason why the fear of the Lord is still a biblical concept. And I feel like we've lost the fear of the Lord. Young people, I want you to hear me on this. Your generation is more challenged than any generation that has ever grown up in the United States because everything's questioned now. You've got the deprogramming of, of young people's faith that's happening through podcasts. You've got people that were once mainstream Christians that are now um, deconstructing faith and showing up just on the turn of a dime and saying, yeah, I'm not a Christian anymore, or I don't believe in the God of the Bible anymore. I've got my own understanding with God. Let me tell you, that is demonically fueled. It is straight out of the pit of hell, and it is a strategy of Satan against millennials and younger, straight up. And part of the other component of that is this idea that we can be in covenant with God and be born again, and yet it not display itself through uh, an alignment of our attitudes, our ideas, our words, and our actions with them. That we can literally get our ticket punched to heaven, but live like hell. And it's such a, a blasphemous, heretical thought. I want to tell you, listen to me. He is the Holy Spirit. Holy. Holy Spirit. He's not the cool, fun, do a trick, parlor trick for a spirit. He's not, he's not just simply the gift spirit. I believe in the gifts. But he's the Holy Spirit. And if we believe that he indwells us because we have surrendered to Jesus Christ, but our lives are not marked by holiness and we're okay with that, I'm going to tell you, he doesn't live in you. He, he, the spirit that lives in us yearns in jealousy over us so Israel had to consider their ways and I think as we move into a new decade the message for the church all of the professing churches you really need to do an assessment of who you are and how you are now forgive me if that seems like you know well actually I don't need your forgiveness for it it's true we've got to get to the point where we quit saying everything's okay and all things are equal and because you prayed a prayer when you were 9 years old or 15 years old or 25 years old or 40 years old, you prayed a prayer, Jesus, come into my heart. Therefore, everything's great. That's not true. In Israel, God was so merciful and kind to come to them in their backsliddenness and to say, hey, that was actually me fighting you all this time. And I wasn't fighting to destroy you. I was fighting to break you because when I break you, I can bless you. So let me get down to the verses at hand if you need to leave before I'm done I promise you're not going to hurt my feelings but I, I, I don't want to rush these last few thoughts so here's the, here's the other part of seeding 2020 I believe God is calling us to trusting obedient release listen to this because God's just kind of worn them out for a chapter and a half with a little bit of reassurance and this is what he says consider from this day onward from the 24th day of the ninth month since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, and here's the question, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing 
but from this day on, I will bless you. So it was September 24th, I'm in the prayer room and we're fasting. I'm trying to remember if it, I think it was at a four to six worship gathering. Hazen Stevens is on the mic and he's praying for, for an anointing to fall on our funding of missionaries. And I'm, I'm, I'm just pacing back and forth while he's on the mic and the room's kind of, uh, just kind of really fired up and alive and, and I, I'm, I'm walking and I don't know what you think of when somebody says I heard the Lord say but it, I didn't hear the audible voice of God but it was just as solid I hear in my inner ear <laughs> I hear this phrase is the seed yet in the barn is the seed yet in the barn and I'm like why where does that come from I, I was familiar with it because I remember reading that years and years ago but it's not something like it's nobody's life verse and it's just, it's not one we cling to, but it just kept going in my ear. So I sat down, I pulled up my phone. I knew it was in Haggai. I found it and uh, I just started reading the, the other passages. I mean, the other verses in that passage. And I scrolled up a little bit and it says the ninth, the 24th day of the ninth month. And I thought, hey, that's interesting. It's a different calendar, but today's the ninth month and it's the 24th day. So I'm sitting there getting a word in my ear that is connected to the same description of the day that I was actually standing in. It's a Hebrew calendar for them, but it was still our 24th day of our ninth month. So immediately the Lord starts solidifying some things in my heart and I start getting these downloads and I, I couldn't even process them. I process it with Hazen in about 30 seconds. He's like, Hazen, if you don't know Hazen, he's chill. And he just looked at me, he's like, yeah, you should say that on the mic. <laughs> so I did. And, and I released it, and this is what it was. It had a very particular application that day in finances because we were praying for financing missionaries. And as I released that word that said, from this day on, I will bless you. From this day on, I will bless you. We knew that that word, it was just that prophetic kind of vibe in the room. We knew it was a word for the room. And I felt like God was calling us to sow into other people's lives. And so I did something I rarely do. I said, I feel like if, if, if you have money in your wallet and you've got the faith to release it, find somebody that the Lord leads you to in this room and start blessing people. It was fun, man. I just stood back while I emptied my wallet. I, I had a lot of money in my wallet that day too, man. I was like, hey, I liked it better when I was preaching before I had to act on it, but now I'm acting on it. And that's where the power is. So I'm watching people, they're handing out cash and everything. Listen, from that moment, it not only encouraged the people that were blessed to receive, it encouraged those that obeyed and, and, and released. But here's the amazing thing. For about two weeks afterwards, I was getting texts and emails from people that released stuff that day. There were real estate day, uh, real estate uh, um transactions that got breakthrough on it there was an inheritance that came out of nowhere another one got a check in the mail and these were people that released and I realized okay that word is something for our whole house the seed on that day was about financial release that's not really what I'm talking about today I don't want to steer you away from it I, I will say this if you're not faithful to God with your finances don't ask him to bless your finances that's in, you're asking the God of heaven to endorse your hypocrisy by blessing your disobedience. You can't do that. The best you can do is work real hard and watch him blow on it just like he did to Israel. But you don't have to do that. I said I wasn't going to preach on that, but it felt good there for a minute. What is the seed then? God said, hey, the fig tree, nothing. The pomegranate, nothing. The vine, nothing. The olive tree, nothing God says but you repented and from this day on I'm going to bless you from this day on not well let me watch you for six months and see how you do and then I'll decide what God said from this day on 
I'm going to bless you. But he asked the question, if I can amplify it. Why are you wanting a harvest but hiding your seed in the barn? Why are you expecting breakthrough? Why are you waiting for all of these glorious things that you really do want, but you're actually expecting it to happen independently of your obedient participation? Friends, that is not what we learn about faith. Faith in the Bible, although I probably would make most of you nervous uh, with my ideas about the sovereignty of God. I believe God is sovereign, and if you want that broken down in the simplest terms, it means God is in full charge and control of everything. If you don't like that, then I'm just going to ask you if he's not in charge, who is? You? You in charge? Who? The devil? Somebody's in charge. This, isn't, this thing's not just kind of happening. He's in charge. But I want to tell you something. The fact that he's sovereign doesn't mean that he's obligated to do what he wants to do independently of my response of, towards who he is. And so it matters what you do. It matters how you respond. It matters how you live. It matters how you obey. Your faithfulness matters. If it didn't, Jesus would have been, wouldn't have ever said, he said it multiple times, be it unto you according to your what? Faith. So what we believe matters, how we obey matters, what we do matters. Christians, listen, we are all wanting a harvest, but we're holding back the seed. Christians, we are, we're waiting for our ship to come in, but we haven't sent one out. It's still tied to the dock. Christians, all of us want breakthrough, but we hold back on the foundation of obedience. We want progress, but we refuse to plant the seed of surrender. And listen, everybody will vote yes for progress, but not everybody will vote yes for change that brings about the progress. Is the seed yet in the barn? Some of you have a calling on your life, but there's been, a, there's been a dozen questions that you've been asking yourself for a little too long that you're assuming you're going to get answered before you say yes to the calling. A king's calling is not to be answered, it's to be obeyed. And uh, I love you guys, but I'm going to take a minute more. Just put, put, some, put some good vibe music on this, and that'll help me. Bethany knows me well enough now that if she doesn't get up here, y'all will be here until the 11:15 service. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap it up, but listen to me on this. Is the seed yet in the barn? Is the seed yet in the barn? Some of you have a, a song in you that the Lord wants to release, but it's sitting on a piece of paper somewhere half done because something happened and you just didn't finish it. That seed's in the barn. Some of you have a calling, a vision. Some of you have got love that you want to give, you're afraid to give because the last time you gave love, you got hurt. And you don't want to do that. So you want to be loved, but you don't want to give love. And the seed's in the barn and the harvest of love is not happening. Some of us, it's faith. Listen, some of it, listen, I, I, I just don't, I don't want to go out. Oh, God, help me. Jesus, help me with this. Help me now. I don't want to go out knowing that I played it safe. I don't want my testimony to be, he was busy and he played it safe. Put that on my gravestone, it's a failed life. Boy, was he busy, my how he played it safe. I don't want that. That's not, that's not, 
That's not a proper response to the Son of God, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who loved us, anticipated in omniscience what our need would be. So he came for us, and he lived a perfect life, and he died a sacrificial death. He took agony in his body, had the Father turn his back on him, was forsaken by God the Father so that I might be welcomed by God the Father. And beyond just providing for it, when I was at the height of my rebellion, when I thought Jesus and God and all the church stuff was a joke, and my heart was so hard, and I was so bitter, and I was so angry and so lost and so hurt. And what does he do, man? He puts me side by side with a froaming-at-the-mouth rabid Baptist youth pastor at my workplace. And that dude made a bullseye of my soul. And for two years, God used that man to pour truth into me, to bring me to awareness that I could consider my ways. And then he radically saved me and broke addiction off of my life and gave me a heart that began to learn how to love. And he stood by me, and I haven't always been good, and I haven't always been obedient, and I haven't always been faithful. And there's been a lot of Jeff in certain seasons in my life but he just keeps coming after me and he keeps coming after you. And so I can't look at the possibility of standing before him and saying, I tried to play it safe. I tried to stay busy. I tried to just do my part. He's just worthy of so much more than that. I just feel like I gotta get down right now. And just call us. What's the seed? What are you holding on to? What have you been saying no to? What have you been waiting for a more convenient season? Some of you are unsaved in this room. You're unsaved. You don't know Jesus and he keeps coming after you and he just sent me here this morning and all my wreckage just to tell you that he loves you and he wants to bless you starting today. But the seed of your trust has to come out of the barn. You have to plant it in the field of faith. You have to say yes to him. You know, press in after you. I want you to stand to your feet. Just stand up, please. All of you. Let's close the door on the decade. For some of you, it was awesome. For some of you, it was awful. Close the door on it either way. Just close the door on it. Stop glorying in it and stop groaning over it. Close the door on it right now. You gotta, you, your life is a seed. He's given you this life. Your heart is a seed. He wants you to release it to him. You're in this room and you've never repented and you've never bowed before Jesus Christ. And you've had a dozen reasons to hold on to the seed of your heart. I want you to open it up right now and call on him. Welcome him to be the Lord of your life right now where you are. Just surrender, surrender. Just go ahead and surrender. Just go ahead and surrender right now. Just, just go ahead and say, yes, Jesus, I'm sorry for my sins. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, I trust, I believe, I receive you, I bow. Let all religion be damned. Let the life of Jesus come alive in your heart. I'm not asking you to be religious. He says he's gonna shake the nations, so please stop worshiping America. Stop worshiping your political party. Stop worshiping all of the cultural stuff. Stop that. Stop fighting for that. He's going to shake it.
In the end, there is one kingdom, one ruler. So God, I'm asking you as we close this year and this decade, give us courage to take the seed out of the barn and plant it in faith. You're worthy, Jesus. No more half-stepping. No more excuses, no more fear. God, I'm asking you to give uncompromised, trusting obedience to each of us in the place where you've assigned us. We're sorry for all the questions we demand answers to before we obey. Forgive us. You're worthy of our trust. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, sorry, got a little sloppy. <sighs> All right, love you guys. Come back at five if you can.